Hey guys, J.D. Flynn here. Catholic News Agency, as some of you probably know, is a part of EWTN. And because of that, I spend some time every year at EWTN's main campus in Irondale, Alabama. Inevitably, when I head down to Alabama, I see a priest walking around campus in cowboy boots and a big 10-gallon hat. It's a guy named Father Mitch Pacwa. He does radio and TV shows for EWTN, and he's an avid hunter. Sometimes, Father Mitch will even provide the protein for dinner at EWTN's staff cafeteria. Sometimes, he gives his game to needy families who live near EWTN's campus. At EWTN events, Father Mitch sometimes shows off pictures on his phone of his latest hunting trips. Alligators in Louisiana, feral hogs in Alabama. This is a fantastic chance for an old guy to show off. <laughs> Don't underestimate the interest of guys in showing off. Well, what's the picture? Okay. <laughs> I usually don't wait for an answer to show them. <laughs> the, the primary prey I look for is deer, deer and wild boar. Partly because they're a pest, uh, the the boar that is not the whitetail. Uh, the the whitetail are tastier. Today, hunting is a pretty big part of Father Mitch's life. He told us he tries to go every day, but he's actually pretty new to the sport. Uh, I I started hunting in my mid fifties, and I um, very much have come to love it. I'm I'm actually pretty good as a hunter. One of Father Mitch's favorite places to hunt is in Texas. Some of his friends own a ranch there. That's where I learned to hunt. It's one of my favorite places anyway. I love Texas. Father Mitch told us he often spends the entire week of Thanksgiving in Texas with his hunting buddies. It's something he says he really looks forward to. You know, if we harvest a, uh, an animal, then you gotta clean it. And that's, you know, uh, it sounds odd, I know, but that's actually part of the fun of it because you harvest you know, and you do the cleaning all of the animals with uh, with my friends. Usually you don't hunt together. Sometimes you do, but much more frequently. We'll, we'll sit around and we'll butcher the animals together. So it's a lot of fun. They hunt for turkey, but they usually also try to hunt some kind of bigger game for their Thanksgiving meal. Actually, I hunt with a lot of Texans who don't like turkey. To quote them, I don't want some dirty bird on my uh, table. They, they want they want a four-legged critter. That's, that's sort of their go-to dinner. Hold on, you might be asking yourself, are priests actually allowed to go hunting? And if you're a church historian or think you're a church historian, you probably know that as early as the Council of Trent, there were prohibitions placed upon clerical hunting trips. Priests at various times have been forbidden from horseback fox hunts, from hunting with hawks, and from big, rowdy hunting parties. The 1917 Code of Canon Law said that priests should not even carry guns and should avoid too much hunting, especially of the, quote, clamorous variety. But since 1983, there have been no universal prohibitions on priests hunting. A particular bishop or religious superior could curtail it for his priests, but otherwise, so to speak, it's open season. Anyway, this year, Father Mitch's hunting group will be a little bigger. 
Guadalupe Radio in Midland, Texas, auctioned off a day of hunting with Father Mitch. <laughs> yes, ma'am, I want it. This is Billy Eggmeyer. He lives in Midkiff, Texas, and he's hunted most of his life. Since I was about six years old, this is more or less a special occasion. I, I farm, and this is usually harvest season, so we take off one or two times a year and hunt. Billy told us he listens to Father Mitch when he's in his tractor. He said he's pretty excited to meet the priest. I think it's going to be an awesome experience. There's some great friendships and camaraderie, and I just love being with my, my hunting buddies. I really do. It's, it's just really fun. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. This week on the podcast, the founder of Wiffle Tree Farm in Virginia shares the story of his conversion and talks about the Thanksgiving turkey rush. Then we talk with a retiree in the Diocese of Brooklyn and Queens who donates and distributes hundreds of turkeys each Thanksgiving in honor of his dad. And then a counselor talks about the relationship between grief and gratitude. But first, our producer Jonah McKeon brings you the story of Nicholas Black Elk, a Native American who converted to Catholicism in the early 20th century and who could one day be named a saint. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. Stay with us. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Everybody knows the story of the first Thanksgiving. The pilgrims endured a bitter New England winter and then sat down together for a Thanksgiving meal with the Native Americans who helped them survive. Most of that is true. But a couple of years ago, the Catholic media world started buzzing about the idea that one of the Native Americans who helped the pilgrims the most was probably a baptized Catholic. Our producer, Jonah McKeown, brings us the story of that famous Native American, who was probably Catholic. And then the story of another Native American who's on his way to sainthood. Here's Jonah. If you're like most Americans who grew up making paper pilgrim hats, turkeys, and cornucopias in elementary school, you've probably heard the story of Squanto before. Way back in 1621, the pilgrims, lacking both skills and resources necessary to survive in the harsh territory of New England, encountered a miracle. Here's this native who appears out of the wilderness speaking English. This is Dr. Damien Costello, a Catholic historian and theologian. He was um, very instrumental in helping them adapt to the North American environment probably would not have survived without his help, and he was a key intermediary between the local people and the pilgrims. Squanto's full name was Tusquantum, and he was a member of the Patuxet tribe, who lived in and around modern-day Plymouth, Massachusetts. It seemed like he was probably born around 1585 in the area that is now Boston. The pilgrims, who arrived in Plymouth from England in November 1620, weren't the first Europeans to arrive on these shores by any means. The Jesuits were already starting their missionary activity. English explorers were also active in the area. This is really where Squanto's story begins, because historians really don't know anything about his early life. He was abducted by an Englishman, uh, Thomas Hunt, in 1614. And he seems to have ended up in Malaga, Spain. Uh, he was probably sold by Hunt there. And the story goes that uh, a group of Franciscans 
bought him in order to free him from slavery and were interested in educating him in the faith. He spent a number of years in Europe. He made it to England, eventually to Newfoundland, and then back home in 1619. When Squanto finally arrived back to where his tribe lived in present-day Massachusetts, his life took a tragic turn. He found that his entire tribe had been wiped out by disease, and he, the only survivor. When the pilgrims arrived, the now empty Patuxet land made a good place to settle, and Patuxet became Plymouth. In March 1621, the chief of the Wampanoag Confederation, Massasoit, went to meet with the pilgrims and brought Squanto along to translate. The negotiations didn't go very well, and long story short, Squanto ended up staying with the pilgrims and helped to facilitate what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. You know, it's easy to assume that Squanto was, would have been a victim, sort of paralyzed by his abduction, but the record portrays a very skillful agent who was actively engaging European life and culture. And this is exemplified by his ability to speak English. Um, and even more impressive, finding his way back to his homeland. There are some Catholic commentators out there that claim definitively that Squanto was not only baptized in Spain, but also catechized and fully embraced the Catholic faith. But is this really what the admittedly thin historical record shows? I don't think that it's unlikely that Squanto became Catholic on some level. I mean, I think it's likely he received baptism, and therefore, theologically, he was Catholic. And I, I don't think it's unlikely that he saw it as a positive spiritual experience and had some sort of role in his life. Squanto, um, finding himself in this new place, uh, this new environment, new peoples, he would have been looking for a way to make a spiritual connection uh, with those surroundings. We're going to shift gears here, because although we don't know for sure if Squanto was Catholic, there is one prominent Native American, Damien told me, that we know for sure was Catholic. He lived almost 250 years after Squanto, when settlers were crossing the Great Plains and expanding the territory of the burgeoning United States. I'm currently the vice postulator for Nicholas Black Elk's cause for canonization in the Catholic Church. Black Elk was born sometime between 1858 and 1866. He was a cousin to the famous Lakota warrior, Crazy Horse. Black Elk toured Europe with Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show, and he made friendships, he fell in love. He survived on his own when he and a few friends missed the boat back to North America. And he was also impressed by Christian teachings. Black Elk was actually involved in the infamous Battle of Wounded Knee in 1890. At that battle, the United States Army gunned down an estimated 300 Lakotas. Black Elk himself was injured in that battle. Even before his conversion, Black Elk became famous thanks to a book by the poet John Nyhart that portrayed Black Elk's early life in a very tragic narrative and portrays Black Elk himself as something of a relic of the old ways of Native America. Black Elk was nothing like the portrayal in Black Elk Speaks. I mean, he, he did all those things. He was at Battle of Little Bighorn, Wounded Knee. But after Wounded Knee, he became Catholic, and he became a very active Catholic, a leader in the church. Black Elk's first wife, who he married two years after Wounded Knee, is believed to have brought the family's children into the church first, 
And after she died, Black Elk came into the church himself in 1904, taking the confirmation name Nicholas because he admired the saint's generosity. Black Elk had a long-standing interest in Christianity. You know, he toured in Europe. He reported back very enthusiastically about some Christian ideas. Um, you know, we have the benefit of three letters that Black Elk wrote about his time in Europe, and they all refer to Christianity. The final one quoting uh, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's great treatise on love, and Black Elk says that this was the best thing he found on his journey um, through North America and Europe. Like many of his ancestors, Nicholas Black Elk had previously been a medicine man, which combined the roles of medical doctor, spiritual advisor, and counselor. It can't be overemphasized how conventional a lot of Black Elk's Catholicism was. You know, he he appreciated and promoted the old ways, but his Catholic life was very, you know, conventional to the norms of his time. He was had a great devotion to the Rosary, uh, the Sacred Heart. He was remembered even in his very old age, walking walking to church with this one friend, um, saying the Rosary. Jesuit missionaries in South Dakota chose Black Elk as a catechist in 1907 for his enthusiasm and his excellent memory for learning scripture and church teaching. He traveled around on horseback teaching the Catholic faith. His efforts brought more than 400 people into the church. You know, like a lot of things in Indian country, things that maybe a lot of us would assume have little or no meaning in native contexts often do. You know, whether it's military service, Christianity, or something like Thanksgiving. Nicholas Black Elk actually had a special prayer that he would recite from memory every Thanksgiving. I am talking to you, Grandfather Great Spirit, on this day. Pitifully, I sit here. I am speaking for my relatives, my children, my grandchildren, and all my relatives, wherever they might be. Hear me, Grandfather Great Spirit. With your help, our needs are taken care of. You have helped us in the time of want during the past, and on this day we wish to thank you. I, my children, and my grandchildren shall walk, led like children, by your hand. You have helped us in all things, and Grandfather Great Spirit, through your power alone we have survived. One day we shall go and arrive at the end of the road, in that future, we shall be without any sin at all. And so it will be in the same manner for all my grandchildren and relatives who will follow us as well. We give you thanks, Grandfather Great Spirit. I am sending this prayer to you. Nicholas Black Elk died in 1950. The Diocese of Rapid City has opened Nicholas Black Elk's sainthood cause, and earlier this year sent all their research materials to the Vatican. Time will tell when the Native American catechists will hopefully be declared venerable, and eventually, perhaps even, become the second canonized Native American saint in history. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. Thanksgiving is definitely our craziest time of year. Um, it, is, it is is madness. This is Jesse Strait. He's the owner and lead farmer of Whiffle Tree Farm in Warrenton, Virginia, about 50 miles southwest of Washington, D.C. 
we slaughtered and processed about 750 turkeys. It is a lot of a lot of birds that take up a lot of space, and it's really high stakes because these birds are sort of centerpiece parts of of the meal. 750 turkeys, and Wiffle Tree Farm is sold out this Thanksgiving. People love our turkeys, and um, I'm not surprised. A pasture-raised chicken will top out at about 15% of their nutrients off the pasture, whereas a turkey will get about 40% of their nutrients off pasture. So a pasture-raised chicken is a really wonderful thing, and a pasture-raised turkey is even more wonderful. I started the farm about 10 years ago, Easter Monday of 2009. The previous day, Jesse and his wife Liz had come into the Catholic Church. So in one weekend, I became Catholic and a farmer. Catholicism and farming were never part of Jesse's plan. He was raised a devout Protestant. I knew very little about farming. You know, I grew up in a pretty typical suburban family here in Warrington. So it's it's sort of uh, the exurbs. So, you know, we're around farms, but it's a lot of the life is pretty suburban. Um, and I had no thought of being a farmer. Jesse studied pre-med and religious studies at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, where he met and married Liz. After graduation, Jesse and Liz settled into Charlottesville. But Jesse said they felt unsettled in their career paths and their faith. Jesse began reading the works of St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. He started to question the authority of his Protestant community. There would be sort of, oh, there's this new pastor who gives really good sermons. We're going to go to this church now. And I was like, well, wait a second. <laughs> Is that what decides what we believe? You know, like the guy who's really charismatic. Jesse said there was a shakeup at his Episcopal church. So he convinced his wife and a group of friends to try RCIA at the local Catholic parish. It was just sort of like, you know what, guys? We, we think very Catholicly and we act very Catholicly. Maybe we should just do RCIA and see what happens. I'm just so grateful. And, and I know it's sort of like the, the trite phrase, but very much was a coming home. At the same time, Jesse was reading St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. He also picked up the works of Wendell Berry, the award-winning 20th century poet farmer. Barry writes about the connection between God and nature, stewardship, and man's responsibility to care for God's creation. Jesse said Barry's words spoke to his heart. A lot of the things that made me interested and were compelling about uh, farming and the life that it entails, at least in the, the vision that I was given, were really sympathetic and, and compatible with all the things that were compelling my wife and myself into the Catholic Church. The idea of an integrated life where family and home and work and church and education and the basic necessities of life as much as possible gathered closer to each other rather than being pulled apart, which is sort of the, the common tendency of our modern life. And then, you know, the Catholic Church's emphasis on the family and home, the parish, subsidiarity, and all those kinds of things, those all were in harmony with each other. So I didn't really plan it, but I guess I'm not so surprised that the story went that way. So that Easter Monday of 2009, Jesse and his wife moved back to Jesse's hometown of Warrington, and they started Wiffle Tree Farm under the mentorship of Joel Saladin, a farmer known for sustainable pasture-based animal farming. 
I felt like I wasn't being irresponsible to give it a go because I had such a good example. But nonetheless, I did not know what I was doing, both in terms of starting and running a business and in terms of being a farmer. I think probably when my wife and I were envisioning our life, it was like, you know, we completely provided everything that we ever needed. You know, we made our own clothes and we grew all of our own vegetables and we preserved everything and we grew, you know, raised all our meat. And, you know, we're like, you know, bought toilet paper. And besides that, we're all right, you know. But it didn't take long for Jesse and Liz to realize their vision was a little unrealistic, at least within their lifetime okay, we're not going to grow our own vegetables. We're going to get them from other farmer friends and we're not going to milk our own cow. We're going to get that from another farmer friend. There's just so much that you can get done <laughs> in, in, in a day and, and even in a generation. You know, I can see possibly my children having even sort of greater abundance and self-reliance and in communal reliance um, than we have because of what you can kind of uh, set up in a lifetime. But Jesse said he's proud of what Wiffletree Farm has become in 10 years. We raise and sell chicken, eggs, turkey, pork, and beef. And we pride ourselves on our farming practices. The, the mindset of a good farmer is to be humble and observant of the natural systems that God has put into place. This isn't a wildlife preserve. We're, we're actually here to raise food and make a living and that kind of stuff. But while we're doing that, we want to try and approximate how how uh, animals and plants thrive naturally. Jesse said it's pretty simple to help animals and plants thrive naturally on a farm. You just need movement. Animals at Wiffletree Farm are constantly moved to fresh pasture. Animals want fresh grass. They don't want to be mucking around in the messy spot they just left. And fresh pasture means less stress on the animal's immune systems, which means Jesse doesn't need to give his animals antibiotics or chemical wormers. You know, we don't use antibiotics because we don't need to, and we don't use chemical wormers and we don't use genetically modified grains, um, and we don't use any chemicals on the land, and our beef is 100% grass-fed. So the food and the farming are healthy for the people who eat the food, are healthy for the land, so the land can make even healthier food next year, are healthy for the animals, and are healthy for our community. Like, I don't mean to, to sort of hate on industrial food and farmers in particular, you know, farmers in general raise the food that people want to buy. The farmer out there will be happy to raise food that people are happy to buy, you know. Wiffletree Farm sells its products directly to customers through a storefront on the property and a neighborhood delivery service that spans the D.C. metro and most of Virginia. They also have some wholesale customers, such as restaurants in the same area. This winter, they're hoping to try shipping. We spoke with Jesse in the midst of the Thanksgiving turkey rush. Despite the stress, Jesse was in good spirits. You know, I like to be with our customers and and everyone's in a good mood and it's all about, you know, getting families together and putting uh, something really special on the table. Jesse said he and his family typically wait to have their Thanksgiving meal until the Saturday after the holiday because they're just exhausted. I think, I don't know if it was last Thanksgiving or whatever the one before, I think we like, took one or two naps or definitely took one whether we took two naps and i think we had like chicken soup <laughs> jesse's life has changed a lot over the last 10 years with his conversion and his new career as a farmer this thanksgiving he said he has a lot to be grateful for with lots of good help and god's grace we've made it we've made it through and i'm so grateful for cna newsroom i'm carl bunderson
Jesse actually designed an internship program with his former self in mind for anyone interested in exploring a new career as a farmer. You can find more information on Wiffletree Farm's website, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. After the break, the New York retiree who donates hundreds of turkeys each year in honor of his dad. And a counselor gives some advice for anyone who is grieving the death of a loved one this Thanksgiving. We'll be right back. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. On Mondays, we listen to CNA Newsroom. My name is Carl Bunderson. I'm managing editor at Catholic News Agency. If you're listening to this right now, there's a 30% chance you're already subscribed to CNA Newsroom. It's like I have ESPN or something. But if you're not subscribed to CNA Newsroom, you can't sit with us. CNA Newsroom is available on every podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Search for CNA Newsroom and tap the subscribe button. And while you're at it, leave us a rating and a review. We're not like a regular podcast. We're a cool podcast. Now back to the show. Alphonse Catanese remembers every Thanksgiving when his dad would load hundreds of turkeys into a dump truck. Then he'd pick up Alphonse and his brother from school and together they would drive to brickyards and supply yards around town. They'd visit all the people his father worked with throughout the year. He would give them a turkey at 12 o'clock on a Wednesday before Thanksgiving and then send everybody home early so they could prepare their table. I could never figure it out why we always used to do this. So one day we finally asked my father and he goes, you gotta understand, it's nice to help people and that Thanksgiving's a special time of the year. You might not see people throughout the whole year, but when you bring them a turkey on Thanksgiving and they sit down at their table the next day, they remember you and they remember you not only that day when they share that food with their friends and family, but they remember you throughout the year as the guy that made it extra special by going out of his way to bring you a turkey. My dad passed away in 2006. And my brother and I took over the business. The two brothers continued their father's Thanksgiving tradition. And then I retired a few years back. And one day I was sitting around talking to my wife and saying, wow, remember how it used to be around this time of the year? We'd go crazy, pick up turkeys, put them on the, in some in the refrigerator, freezer, whatever, put them on the dump truck, go out, take care of everybody. His wife suggested he revive the tradition. But this time, in collaboration with Catholic Charities in Brooklyn and Queens. Catholic Charities has hosted its turkey and trimming giveaway for over a decade. But in 2016, Alphonse and his wife Maria became lead sponsors, donating about 700 turkeys. Alphonse and Maria even helped distribute the turkeys. Catholic Charities selects recipients for the giveaway. Each person gets a voucher for a turkey and a basket of items to complete his or her Thanksgiving meal. We're talking about dinner rolls, cranberry sauce, and stuffing. Well, it's a great thing. It put me back in the game, and anybody can write out a check or send a donation. But I got to tell you, it's truly a great feeling. You hand that person a turkey, the person turns around and they look at you and they say, thank you. And you know it's a genuine thank you. So from our point of view, to spend all the money on these turkeys every year, as opposed to doing something else, I get greater satisfaction out of it. I want to keep my father's tradition alive, which he would be happy. And two, I can really see that I'm making an impact on 700 people. And that's how it really all started. Just from, you know, from my dad had it, it really 
he had really started it many, maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago in business, and we carried it through. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kevin Jones. The holidays can be a challenging time for a lot of people, and Thanksgiving for some of us feels like the kickoff to a pretty difficult couple of months. For our last segment, we spoke with Abby Coetz. Abby is a Catholic counselor in St. Paul, Minnesota. She told us that Thanksgiving and Christmas are her busy season. Many of her clients mourn the loss of loved ones and wrestle with family trauma. Abby's had her own taste of grief during the holidays. Her dad, Jeff, died in a car accident a few months before Thanksgiving in 2015. She spoke with our producer, Kate Oliveira. The first major holiday after my dad had passed away was Thanksgiving. At the time, it was really the first experience of loss that anyone in our family had had. Our memories were just complete happiness and joy, and suddenly this thing that used to be such a bright light in the year became this really daunting idea of this used to be something so joyful and now it's not. Now it now it just seems painful. It seems so painful to to experience this without our dad. It was just our immediate family together for that first holiday. We were initially going about the holiday like it was normal, pretending that it was normal even though it wasn't, and making plans like normal and cooking all of the same foods like normal and going about the day like normal. And then midway through the meal, I think one of us started crying, and then we all started crying. We look back on that, and we can joke about it now like it was the Thanksgiving of tears. Ultimately, what happened is we admitted to the great pain that was present that we were all experiencing in the loss of our dad. It brought such a closeness to those of us who were there. Abby told me that her father's death and her grieving process were part of what inspired her to seek a career in counseling. Going through my own grieving process and, you know, not that you're ever done, but the first year is definitely, I think, safe to say, the hardest. Um, And seeking my own counseling really saw what a gift that grieving process was. It did cultivate a sense of gratitude for the experience of losing my dad, which I know can seem really odd. But through that gift that I received in my own healing journey, felt very called to extend myself and put myself in a position where I could offer that same gift of healing to others. Abby said Thanksgiving and Christmas can be especially challenging for those who have lost a loved one or those with a lot of woundedness from within their own family. We more or less joke that holidays are actually the busy season for therapists. It seems that a lot of clients are just trying to get through the holidays. And to be honest, even in my own experience of when there are family crises or loss of a loved one or whatnot, there is, I've witnessed even in myself, just, I want to just get through this. Um, it's, it's too hard. It's too painful to really feel like I can address it on my own. But if you're grieving the loss of a loved one this Thanksgiving, she said it's important to acknowledge those feelings and find ways to honor that person's memory. When you think about anyone who's died, you can probably think of favorite foods or movies or 
funny things they would say or games they loved. And so intentionally incorporating those into the day. I asked Abby about the relationship between grieving and gratitude. Gratitude can exist simultaneously to a deep sorrow and a deep sadness. Those two can go hand in hand. It's okay to be really sad. It's okay to be hurting or to be angry. But in the midst of it, to to offer gratitude to God for being with you in that hurt and in that pain. You know, maybe it's it's not you're not in the place. Maybe you are, but gratitude for the cross itself in the way that it will inevitably transform you and those around you. While I don't know that those questions are ever fully answered, you know, the questions of why or why did God allow this, I do know this, and that's that if you are seeking healing, which is your responsibility too, especially as Christians, if you're working to seek and receive healing, although it's painful, it's always a time of grace. It's graceful because we open ourselves up to God being at work within us and in our lives. And when you think about God's grace being in you and being in God's presence, there's no response that's more appropriate than one of gratitude. Abby will spend this Thanksgiving with her family at her mom's house. It still was a hard day, you know, at the end of it, I can look back and say, yeah, we got through it. But I think acknowledging the pain and addressing it and sitting in it with one another and even just crying with each other was such a gift. Um, As a family, it was a good reminder that we're not in in it alone. We had one another, but also brought really fruitful conversation of what we loved about our dad, what we missed about him and our hopes that, you know, we can be with him again someday in heaven and the importance of living a life now that would be worthy of that. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Oliveira. That's our podcast, everybody. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Joan McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks to everyone we spoke with this week and to Deacon Ben Blackbear Jr. and Mark G. Teal for letting us use audio of Nicholas Black Elk's Thanksgiving prayer. Gobble, gobble, everybody.